discuss how to love the monster within. I'm Willow Smith and I'm here with my dad and co-host trainer Ben Smith. So hello everyone this is Ben Smith from um, Love and Goliath and I'm here with Clint Adams from Australia. How are you Clint? Hey Ben I'm great good morning to you guys (laughs) obviously it's your evening but uh, yeah it's nice nice day here in Australia. Yeah, so it's Saturday for you I'm still Friday. (laughs) Yeah yeah I'm sitting in the future you're you're a bit behind. (laughs) <laughs> I know, I, I know it's four o'clock for me. So like any day now, any any moment now I'll get to partying. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Yeah, you still got the whole weekend ahead of you. Oh man, I'll be wrecked by the time I get to your your time. <laughs> no, I don't <laughs> <Yeah>. drink. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I don't drink. <laughs> um, but how are you? Yeah, no, I'm going pretty well actually. There's uh there's a lot going on at the moment. Um, yeah, so no, it's been very busy kind of week um and yeah just going all right cool man well i was really excited to talk to you um you after our we had a little discussion last week so i was super excited to talk to you so what do you tell everybody who you are um just a synopsis of of the big picture sure it was likewise talking to you was great last week as well um yeah so as you said my name is clint adams um i used to be a police officer uh i studied psychology in a number of degrees um over the years and and i guess over time i I was a counselor i was a police officer too and then um yeah over time it kind of evolved into me doing health and well-being programs in a hr environment at a work level and then as it kind of evolved one of the roles that i had i guess became gave me access to information about healthcare and services and stuff like that and so that kind of led me into seeing that you know young kids at 11 and 12 years old on antidepressants on suicide watch and, and i found that quite horrifying in a way um and that led me to kind of doing my own research uh wrote a book which came out a couple of years ago just before COVID, unfortunately but anyway so that's called lighting the blue flame and the book's based around a, a young boy who um is bullied to the point of, of suiciding and then he basically um sends a message out to a lot of people people that are responsible for him being in that predicament uh, people that he feels didn't do anything that just stood by and laughed and egged the bully on and then also myself as a um I guess a character in the book where I literally get dragged in to help the school so his message is he's going to suicide he, he wants um you know he wants people to to not do so he wants people to do something that so it doesn't happen to someone else in the future so that's kind of how I come into it and I kind of drag my school program into it because I'm working with the school, I'm working with the mother who found the son, so we're doing a grief process. And I kind of want to put it into practice so people can kind of understand some of the methodology and the things that we use or I use when I used to be a counsellor um, to kind of help people get through things, but then also put their mind frame in a good space and then also how they interact at a school level with the whole classroom. So it's kind of the social aspect, but also the individual aspect of it. And so the book's written in that way. Um, so, yeah, that's basically, um, you know, where the book came from. And then since the book's come out, the intent was to kind of go out to schools, work with, um, you know, different organisations and, and try and, you know, help them with with the same stuff. Uh, it hasn't quite evolved the way it has because of COVID. So I'm starting to really do more of that, putting the feelers out and, and really getting into that space now that schools have opened again and we're not wearing masks and we can actually go into areas that are obviously not as high risk um, for young people and, and and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, so that's that's the nutshell version of me. Mm. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I mean, you've done a lot of things. But, um, yeah, I read I read uh, the intro parts. Of the, I haven't got the whole – I haven't read the whole book yet, but I read – the parts I read were super, super powerful and impactful. Just it kind of catches oh, you, you, right? Thank yeah, you. Yeah. I mean, but, again, so, so when you're working with kids, you said like 11 – uh, like 11, 12 year old, is that mostly what you you've worked with or, or is no, no, so, the whole spectrum? Yeah, predominantly I've worked in workplaces, um, been the HR kind of overseer of it. I haven't directly done counseling with children. My research has kind of led me because I mean, you're dealing with adults, right? So 
when you deal with adults, you realize that they've all been children. So, you know, it's kind of understanding how the patterns that develop end up coming with you for the ride as you become an adult. And so breaking some of those um, destructive patterns is kind of the key part of it. And so, you know, when I really focus on the neuroscience of how our brain works and how we develop patterns um, and how if you've, if you've been a child with trauma, for example, have you heard of ACEs, which is the Adverse Childhood Experiences? Mm-hmm. So there, there's, you know, there's, there's a model out there that basically says if you've had a certain number of uh, adverse childhood experiences, then the risk factors of you having mental health problems or anxiety or depression or aggression and lots of these things, there's a massive, massive um, big risk that, you know, you'll end up doing that or, or being like that and having problems. So, you know, I really... The research dragged me to really focus on, well, what's happening in that space? Obviously, if the child has trauma, you can't prevent it. But now they come into school, what can we do um, at a really early level to try and nip those things in the bud so that they don't become those, you know, higher risk factors? Because if you do nothing, it's a higher risk factor. If you do something, hopefully you can reduce those risk factors. And for Mm -hmm. me, it was about risk management, if you want to call it that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that kind of leads me into my next kind of uh, a little bit of a, the next question, I guess, which is something that you and I were talking about last time when we chatted about the. Yep. Oh, I gotta remember how you how you put red it. brain, blue, blue brain. Yeah, yeah, which which I find super fascinating because again, I work with a lot of people as well in different capacities, and and I was a high risk kid myself, so so I find it really interesting how some people are not able to make the switch. So. So the red, the the red brain, blue brain, and all that kind of stuff. I, I'd really love to kind of hear more of your your uh, uh, thoughts about that. How, why? What is it? Why some people can't make the switch in the same way? Yeah, I, I guess first thing to do is kind of explain why I termed it red brain, blue brain. So when I used to run these sessions, you know, having had a background in psychology, you learn about neurotransmitters, you learn about different parts of the brain and all that sort of stuff. But then when, when I found when I was running it with people at the work level, I kind of needed to make it practical. They don't want to hear about serotonin levels. They don't want to hear about neurotransmitters. So for me, it was trying to break it down this way. So when we get stuck in what I call red brains, high emotions, so it's not a bad thing. So, you know, anger, sadness, uh, fear, all those things sit in the it's, – it's basically stimulated by our, our, um, our emotional centre, which is the amygdala which is a very small part of the brain, but it's designed there basically to look for danger at all times. Um, unfortunately, when, so if you think of it like a fire alarm, you know, when there's danger, fire alarm comes off, you respond and you do something. But when people get stuck in there, it's like the fire alarm keeps going off, even though there's no danger anymore. And they're almost generating their own danger in their own heads. And so that can then stimulate that fight or flight response over and over and over. And that gets detrimental to people. And this is where they get stuck in, the, in what I call red brain. Now, there's the big part of our brain called the prefrontal cortex. I call that blue brain. And that's the part where you can kind of look to the future. You can plan things and you can do those things. And what tends to happen is when your red brain is fully stimulated, that part of the brain tends to shut down. So when you look at people with disorders that are wired up and stuff, they find that people have had trauma, for example, it's not so much what's also firing, it's what's not firing at the same time. So you kind of get stuck in just the red brain and that's all you focus on. So when you go into fight or flight, what happens is your body gets ready for fight or flight, right? So which is to either run or fight. So blood drains from your brain into your muscles, getting you ready for for that extra energy burst that you're going to need, right? And so you don't have a fully oxygenated brain. So that big blue part of the brain or the big, I call it blue brain, but the big part of the brain, which is our prefrontal cortex, is very much a social aspect. So when you compare us to less social animals like lizards and stuff, you know, then look after the young, higher primates, higher animals that coordinate, work together, very social, they have a bigger part of the brain in respect to the rest. Whereas with lizard brains and that kind of stuff, they don't even have that. So understanding, I guess, the way our brains work is I use red and blue just to make it really easy. So when I'm saying if you're stuck in red, like let's say, you know, you've had trauma as a kid and you're very fearful, you've got an undercurrent of working out how your patterns of thinking work. So we make a lot of decisions with our body. It's not actually just our brain, right? So when red brain triggers, our bodies feel a certain way and then we go and we respond and make a decision. So when things aren't feeling good for us or we don't feel good in our guts. That's what some people say, oh, I've got a gut feeling about this person. It actually works that your brain and your body are constantly talking to each other, especially when you're young. 
when you're taking things in very um, passively, you know, you don't have language yet and all that stuff and you're making sense of the world, your brain and your body are basically calibrating on how you feel about things. So what's happening around you has a massive effect on you early on. That's why there's acquired, um, you know, the, the adverse childhood experiences that I mentioned before was such a key part because, you know, if you've got horrible things happening to you as a child and you don't make sense of it, this is just your normal world, right? So no, no one's teaching you anything yet and if your parents are abusive or you know, that kind of stuff has a massive effect on the pattern that you develop really on. And then it's really hard to break the pattern if you don't even know you've got that pattern and you haven't got people around you that can help you with that. And this is kind of where, you know, when I focus on how you make the switch, when I'm dealing with someone with in trauma, I focus on them. Okay, you're in red brain. You're thinking about a bad event. So I used to work with the police, right, as a counsellor. So I'd have a police officer across from me and he tells me a story about a guy pointing a gun at him. He obviously turns it around and, and doesn't get shot, but now he's reliving that whole memory and it's taking him into very, very dark places. So he's stuck in red brain. So every time he thinks about that, it makes him fearful and then he gets angry because he's also now a different person. He's crying a lot and that kind of stuff. So there's kind of two patterns of red brain. One, he gets angry with himself because he's that feeling that way when he's a big burly cop, you know, supposed to be the tough guy. Um, so there's all these things that happen and when they get stuck in that red brain, my focus is to say, how do I get them from red into thinking blue? And the reason I say blue is that's where we make um, problem solve a lot. So blue brain is our problem solving part. It's our active, okay, I've got to think about this problem. How do I fix it? But when you get stuck in red, that little part of the brain actually slows down. So you've got to kind of work on techniques that will allow you to switch. Some of the techniques is stuff like um, I get them to do a thoughts diary. So when you think about your thinking, it's analytical work. And the blue brain is the part that does the analytical work. So I say, okay, moment you get this thought pops in your head, normally you think about it, get angry, get sad or whatever happens. I want you to write it down and I want you just to write one line, say, you know, what you're thinking and why you think you're thinking that. So you start to do analytical work. It forces the blood to go up back into that part of the brain because now you're doing the analytical work in the blue brain and you're trying to make that shift. So those little things that just interrupt what was happening before and flicking you into blue, whatever that is, this is the important part about, um, I guess, when I look at other therapies, I, I'm not aligned to any particular type of, you know, modality that you would use, whether you're using CBT or, or anything like that. Anything that can switch you from red into blue is going to help work for you. And so understanding a bit about that as a person allows you to go, ah, oh, okay, I need to, I see myself, I'm going into red got to break that pattern. Now you're actually using your blue brain because you're, you're starting to actually think with your blue brain, knowing this is not good for me. A lot of times people don't know what to do and they don't know why they, you know, why they're asking me to breathe deeply, count to 10, all these things. It slows you down, right? So when you slow yourself down and you can do that uh, in a proactive way, you check, you're actually flicking from red into blue. Sometimes you flick back into red and that's okay because it's going to take a little bit of time because if you've built that up as a habit um, over a long, many years, it's about breaking things. Like, I, I don't know your specific stuff that you mentioned before that you were an at-risk child, right? But there must have been a point where things were obviously bugging you. You were going into places in your head that maybe you didn't want to be, but then something happened where you went, I'm either going, I've had enough of this crap, I'm going to do something. And when you start putting things in place to achieve something, whether that's, you know, uh, studying harder or, or wanting to mm. break a pattern or just leaving a bad relationship or whatever that is, patterns start to happen and then amazingly when people are focused in a blue brain space the red still there but they don't get stuck there right you go mm. I still feel bad about all the crap that happened to me but I've got to switch because it's not good for me to stay here so that's kind of um, the nutshell version of, of what I use in red and blue and then the techniques that come with that is literally an exploratory thing between me and the person around what works for them because not mm. not everything will work for, for you like someone else yeah. So why why do you think so many people struggle with that? Because I work with a lot of people too, and I'm always kind of trying to kind of get them to make the switch to like, well, how has this empowered you? How does this you know? I'll try to kind of kind of switch the the dialogue, right, or the narrative. Yeah. But um, why do you think so many people struggle with it? Because a lot of people struggle with it. they get trapped in it, and they just yeah. they just get like it's almost like they can't hear it, right? They can't even hear yeah. the the solution, right? Yeah. A lot of look for me, 
um, a big part of the book is there's a lack of awareness out there. When, when we think about physical health, they teach us stuff at school about physical health. We know about nutrition. We know about running, swimming, cardiovascular. You know, there's gyms, there's personal trainers. There's all this stuff out there. But when we talk about mental health, when I run these sessions with, with adults, you know, who are, you know, in their 50s and 60s, they come up to me afterwards and go, wow, I didn't know this stuff about my own brain. Okay, so first things first, I, I call it unconsciously incompetent, not in a bad way. If you don't know something, you're unconscious, you're blissfully unaware, I don't know anything. So you don't go finding it, you don't think about it. And like you just said there, a lot of people get stuck there because that's just how they feel. And they think, oh, this is my personality or, you know, this happened to me and I'm in a bad way and I might hopefully I can go see a psychologist and that takes six months to get into one and I see them once, at, you know, one week and then I go, oh, that didn't really work for me. And then they go, oh, well, therapy is no good for me. And then they just kind of let it go and they just mm-hmm. think this is the only way it can be because they're unconsciously incompetent. So part of stuff like this in the book is about trying to bring people into being consciously incompetent because when you're consciously incompetent and you don't know anything about it, you go, wow, this stuff really interests me. You know, I, I probably should find out something about this. Mm-hmm. And, and so this is where I'm trying to put them in a way where they, because they're consciously incompetent, they go, holy crap, do I really want to be stuck here? And this is kind of, so, you know, when, when, I'm, when I was doing a lot of counselling, I'm, I'm asking them lots of questions like a coach would because I don't want to tell them what to do because at the end of the day, it's like anything where people tell you what to do. Okay, I want you to do breathing exercises. Then you're here, you go, why in the hell am I going to do breathing exercises? You know, how's that going to work for me? And then you start to second guess what they're asking you to do. Mm-hmm. Or they tell you to do a thoughts journal. Okay, that sounds great. I'm writing this crap down. Why is that working? But if you explain it like I just did where you're going, you need to make this happen because this is what's happening in your brain. You're stuck here. Do you want to be here? If you don't, you've got to kind of think of things that you need to come up with. So I'm actually putting it to you to go in self into blue brain, think of your own solutions that work in the switch. And when they get that kind of connection and understand that at that basic level, that's why I just use red, blue, right? Because it's just easier to understand. There's a lot more information underneath it. If you want that, here's the information. Go and read this. You know, Joe Dispenza's book um, called You Are the Placebo is a great book for this stuff, um, you know, where he rewires his brain. He basically says you have to reinvent yourself. Um, and he, he explains how, how to do that at a much more granular level than I'm saying. I'm saying blue, red. He's saying neurotransmitters, the mm. rewiring of, you know. So, um, yeah, so for me, it's, 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 it's trying to get them to make that connection and understand, oh, so you want me to do this because... You want me to have blood pumping back up to my brain so I can use this and plan ahead. And then when they see that, you know, bit of progress, the thing about the um, the thoughts diary that I like is that what happens is I, I get them to do it for a week. And then you can literally see day one, two, three, it slowly gets less and less and less. It's not thinking about the same thing the same way and for as long. And so they see some progress there. And it takes maybe two or three weeks for them to really break a pattern. And to your point, if people have been thinking that way for a long period of time, it becomes a habit. It's just a habit that you have to break. Like people that smoke for long periods of time, they find it harder than someone who only smokes on a weekend. They, some people can just take it or leave it. So it's their pattern. You also get addicted to some of the things that come with it because that's just how you feel. And so some people are addicted to the drama of their own lives because when they think a certain way, they get this feeling, they then go out and do destructive things and they kind of associate the the parting effects of you know getting on drinking and going out and stuff as part of just them coping um which isn't obviously a very good way of coping Mm -hmm. but it is a coping strategy right so i guess understanding some of that is is such a key part of it and why people do get stuck Hmm. crazy crazy yeah I, i find it all so fascinating so so with your book um, it, it's, it's kind of centered around the idea of the bullying, but, but it, are the same things that you talk about, the same principles, are they, I mean, there's so much depression right now and, and obviously suicide, um, issues of, of, you know, thoughts of suicide and all that stuff are kind of rampant right, right now from what I understand, but, but all the book is, is kind of centered around bullying, but is it, is it a good book for people in general who just want to find more happiness? Like as far as like guiding with some of these techniques and stuff? 
Yeah, definitely. So there's a number of aspects when I think about it, right? Like say one is there's me as a person, as in the victim and the person, their thoughts and why they've ended up being the way they have. And then you you factor that into the social aspect. So understanding that, you know, therapy is never going to work for you if you're getting traumatized at home by your parents or, or something like that. You can have thousands of hours of therapy, but if you go back to the same environment where you're still getting that trauma, it's ongoing, nothing's going to change for you. So it's no different in a school environment where you come into school, maybe, you know, you're a little bit of a a kid that people can pick on, you're not the strongest, you know, all that kind of stuff. You're maybe not very confident in yourself. And so you kind of see this happen um, a lot with, you know, the bullies pick on the smaller kid normally. They don't pick on a big kid who's just going to be able to stand up to them and and, and it's kind of obvious, right? They're they're a bit gutless in a way themselves. So, you know, so you you see these kind of um, social interactions. There's this thing called the dialogue model, which comes out of a book called Crucial Conversations and How to Have Them. And this is another part where Red Brain, Blue Brain comes into it. When we're talking like we are now, I'm not feeling intimidated. You're not feeling intimidated. We're throwing information just into what they call a blue pool. So when we talk, you know, we throw information at each other through our voices. But what happens then is if if there was a safety issue, like let's say you and I were across from each other and you stand up, I say something that offends you and the safety goes out of it for me. I go, oh, Ben's really angry. So I have a conversation in my head, right? And the way the dialogue model works is what's happening in my head, what's happening in your head as we're talking, and what happens if the safety disappears is an important part of it. That's why people don't talk about mental health, right? Because I was talking to some young guys maybe well, a month or so ago, and we were talking about how, you know, how what do they think about, you know, when 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 a male cries in front of their friends, oh, hell no, wouldn't do that. You know, I said, well, you know, why not? Oh, you know, we had a guy two years ago came in crying and everyone was, oh, look at him, little sissy, and, you know, saying derogatory things about him. So that creates a safety issue for anyone else wanting to do that. They go, I don't want to be called that. I saw how they treated him. So, mm. you know, these little things in our minds, and, again, patterns stick in our heads, right? Because, like, if you've been brought up like I have, my dad was a very um, not autocratic, but, you know, very blokey bloke and, you know, big boys don't cry and all that sort of stuff, right? And so when that stuff stick in your head, you you kind of, you hide that from people because, you know, well, you're not a big boy if you're crying. You know, what are you crying for? What are you crying for? All right? And so it's like a negative thing. And so we we inadvertently drum those things into our children um, and that's why a lot of that stuff doesn't get talked about because people don't think of it in a positive way. They don't see showing your emotions as a male or, or in general um, is, is just a great thing, right? And so that's where a lot of the stigma comes in. And so... Part of this book is about, you mentioned, you know, how this can help other people is understanding how we have that conversation, how we create safety in having a conversation. Um, and so there's there's a skill set that comes with that. So some of the stuff I run at, at a work level with adults is running workshops around that, right? I mean, I've done so much um, like investigations into bullying at work where people have been bullied. I'll give you, a, this is a crazy example and this kind of illustrates how things work. So I worked in the steel industry and there was a particular guy who was one of the supervisors. And for some reason, the person came and said, look, I want to make a complaint. I'd only been there a short time. Uh, what's the complaint? Oh, this guy in particular, you know, you might be bending over doing some work and he walks up behind you and sticks his finger in your bottom and then goes <laughs> and laughs about it. And we're like, what? You know? <laughs> and, and so anyway, so I started investigating it. And, like, there was a big team of, like, 30 guys or so, and they're mostly guys. And... Nearly all of them had this happen to them by this guy over like 10, 15 years. And then I'm like, what? And some of them said, look, you did that to me once. And I told him, you do that to me again, mate. It's, you're going to be putting that finger in a, in a cast. Um, so, you know, but, the, but there's, there's some guys, like there's one particular Asian guy who didn't speak very good English. And, you know, they used to say, oh, it happens to that poor bastard all the time. And I'm like, what? <laughs> anyway, I won't bore you with it, but it turns out, you know, people are scared to bring things up. They'll put up with terrible behaviour, and this is where it's about creating safety. So as a business, you know, when when I'm teaching stuff at a business level, we're going, if you've got anything that you're not happy about, you have to talk about it. And I teach them the dialogue model. I teach them about red brain, blue brain, but then also talk about how the team can help each other. They all didn't like it. But no one's said anything about it. No one raised it until this guy did, right? And it's like the Harvey Weinstein stuff. You know, hundreds of women were affected by this guy and said nothing. And then one person comes out and then suddenly, because Mm. they've created safety now to have the conversation. And this is the part I say at a a school level, 
when kids can calibrate behavior, good, bad, or indifferent, it allows them all to have a voice. It allows them all to say, little Johnny pulled my hair today and I didn't like it. Oh, did anyone else have that happen? Yeah, it happened to me as well. I don't like it either. So you're saying to the group and you're saying to Johnny, mate, this is not acceptable behavior. So it's a calibration process, but it's also saying what we're not going to put up with. What it also does is it gives the other kid who doesn't say anything going, yeah, no, I know it can talk up next time. And this is kind of part of it. So we don't have a bystander effect where people see it happen. They know it's not good and they do nothing. So this is what happens all the time. Like this, this example with the guy and the finger, um, you know, classic. And this is, this is grown men, you know, big steel workers not, not feeling comfortable to say, mate, that's not okay, you know, mm-hmm. and not standing up for their, their workmate as well. So, you know, this is, and this happens a lot. When I do bullying um, investigations, see it all the time. People have put up with stuff for years, horrible stuff. They go home and they cry and they write in their diaries and then they want to finally make a complaint when they're leaving the business and then you've got all these examples and then all these other people, oh, yeah, he used to treat us all so badly, but, you know, we just put up with it. So, you know, creating giving people good ideas about stuff is definitely part of the book. The other thing the book does um, is it has a lot of QR codes through it. So like I said, if you want to know more about, you know, true neuroscience, I give examples of the books that you can find that stuff from. So you don't have to read all the stuff I've necessarily read, Mm. but you might have some snippets that you go, wow, this, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. I want to read this book because that sounds awesome. And so, you know, part of me, again, making people consciously incompetent means they might go and read some of those things, find out more and hopefully add value to what they, you know, whether it's their children or whether they're in um, education themselves as, as kind of part of it. So there's also a section which, um, which happened to be the last chapter in the book, which I originally had written as some blogs for some people who um, had ex-army guys who were struggling and, and a few of their mates had committed suicide. So it was about helping them. And so it was kind of an afterthought to send to the publisher after they already approved the book and all that. And they, they read that chapter and said, no, this has got to go in there. So that's also in there as a complete self-help, um, you know, methodology. And, and I've written it into the book as me after I've helped the school kind of writing it to help other people. So mm. I had to re- reword it a little bit, but yeah, essentially there's, there's definitely, um, it's a story about making things practical for people um, I also kind of use the students in there to come up with their own solutions for some of the things around, you know, doing root cause analysis. So I'll give you ways of, of how you would do a root cause analysis, you know, the five whys and using principles of things so people can understand, well, why did this person commit suicide? So the why, the first why is, well, you know, he was bullied. Why was he bullied? Well, this person chose to be the bully, but why does he choose to be the bully? So when you ask all these questions, you kind of can get to your root cause eventually and you say, okay, well, this person was bullied himself at home by dad, which made him feel bad, which gave him that pattern of fear and anger, which then leads to this and this and this and this. And so that's kind of, um, you know, there, there, there's a lot of practical advice in the book for a lot of different problem solving. It doesn't have to be about bullying. It can be about just interactions. Um, and I guess, yeah, that's kind of the, the whole way it's, it's written is that you can use it for, for different things, not just for this bullying kind of approach. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Huh. Super interesting. I'm gonna to have to read the whole thing, but um, <laughs> what, what what do you think? What do you think is something that, uh, if for anybody that's listening to this, is like some of the key? I mean, you talk about journaling, but um, like some of the things that people could do, like like today, to just like start making that shift, right? Because, like I said, I'm a big believer in reinventing yourself, kind of like what you said, Joe Dispenza talks about. Because I've yeah. done it myself, and I think it's I think it's like key, but um, but. People struggle with that, and I think journaling has got to be a, a, a big part of that, right, just to get that directed thought, right? Yeah. What, what, what would you say? So for me, if again, if you think of it like a physical health thing, if I do lots of things, if I eat right and I exercise and I go out and, you know, socialise and I'm enjoying life, I am more likely to be healthy overall. When it comes to um, our mental health, there's lots of things we need to understand. Some of the chemicals that keep us excited, right? Like, so to get your serotonin levels up, you know, go play with a puppy or play with a baby because that actually gives you a buzz in your head, right? So when like my daughter's got a little bulldog, I walk down the streets and you'll see people drudging along and then they see her and they go, yeah. oh, look at the puppy, their hands go. And, and you can just see that add joy just by being a puppy and walking around, right? So anything that can get your serotonin levels up 
is great. So, you know, going for a walk and being out in nature and, 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 and gratitude is definitely a blue brain experience. Again, anything that gives you that blue brain experience is a key. Like, you know, journaling just breaks the pattern and switches you, but at least it's making you think. You know, being creative, people go and do artistic things and who are artistic, I'm not very artistic. Some people play music. Some people just listen to music. These are all blue brain experiences, right? Um, the other thing is, you know, sometimes destructive things can also be blue brain experiences. You know, people want to have lots and lots of sex and stuff like that. You know, it makes you feel good, but, you know, is it in a, in a good way or a destructive way? So understanding things that can do that for, you know, getting your serotonin levels up, getting your oxytocin levels up, you know, all those kinds of things are things that people need to go, oh, what, what can help me do that, whether that's getting out in nature, whether it's exercising. The thing about physical exercise, it also affects you, your mental uh, function, right? So you feel good when you're feeling healthy. So, you know, your, your ego's feeling better, you're looking better, you're just naturally doing that. So, you know, stuff like reading, being creative, going out and, and volunteering with other people. One of the things about people who get stuck in red brain, because it's red brain and not blue, as I said, the blue brain is very much a social aspect, you tend to not want to see other people. So when people feel bad about themselves, they don't go out. They should. They should go out. Mm -hmm. They should be, you know, um, it's like, you know, that they do this thing in prisons where they have the dogs in prison, right, where the prisoners who are very angry and all the normal stuff, now they've got to look after a dog. They're not focusing on themselves and feeling the rage of the world and why am I stuck in this shit all that kind of thing. They, they're there thinking, hey, here's this dog and it relies on me, you know, mm -hmm. and so that, that they start to, it becomes a social thing and they don't that those little chemicals in their brain that's the social aspect of why we connect a lot of people think they don't want to connect with people or you know i'm a bit of a loner that kind of stuff they're not happy about that they choose that because it's actually a defense mechanism because something's hurt them they don't want to connect with someone um that's why some people push other people away and their relationships never work is they don't want it to work underneath because they're really guarded and they're scared there's a there's a vulnerability when you open up to someone and, and they want to share that relationship and so understand stuff like volunteering going out and helping someone else and doing something good for somebody else actually gives you a buzz and it makes you focus in a blue brain space again right so when you see that every time it's that change from that into something now it doesn't have to be any of those things it can be lots of things some people jump out of airplanes to get excited right so you know again gives them a rush, gets them doing something, they feel alive. And so that's, you know, as long as it's not something where they're just trying to write themselves off and, you know, um, so understanding, I guess, and exploring different ways of doing that, such a key part of it, you know, playing with kids, making up games, being creative, going swimming, making people, you know, gardening, um, all those things that they're, they're all blue brain experiences. And that's why, you know, as you get better and you get a bit older and you go, right, I need to take some time to calm myself down. Some people meditate. You know, meditation is a great thing. It doesn't work for me personally. It's one of those things that I find very difficult. My brain's a bit too, not, not, not focusing on red. My brain's just too active on all ideas. So I really find that part hard for me. But then there's other people that swear by it. Uh, I have tried it and I, I don't do it anymore because, like I say, my, my brain just goes a million miles an hour. So, um, yeah, but, you know, uh, I guess Are you able to relax? Are you able to yeah, relax I, though? Oh, yeah. I, um, okay. But, but when I relax, I'm, I'm, I'm always thinking about creative things for, my, like I'm writing a second book. So I kind of, yeah, I don't know. I just can't. I've got too many ideas and thoughts about stuff to, to shut that down completely. But, yeah, I, I can definitely relax, trust me. So um, it's more of a um, me wanting ideas than uh, me wanting to calm it all down and, and then I can't just shut it off. Like I can sleep fine. I don't have it running through my head all the time unless I've got an idea, you know. Sometimes it can happen where I've got these ideas and I'm like, oh, man, that's a good idea. I really should just be getting up and writing this down, you know. So, um, yeah. But, yeah, again, all techniques that, that, that can get you into blue. I think once you understand some of those key chemicals um, in the body and also understanding some of the ones you don't want. So if you are getting super, super stressed and you're feeling a certain way, it's kind of like taking the time and using. So the thing about blue brain is it's our deliberate part of the brain where we can really go, conscious conscious thought not just popping in my head i'm thinking okay this is happening to me i hear it there's also a good technique um is to name your unconscious brain so there's a guy i know who calls his carlos and so he talks to carlos like it's his naughty friend all right carlos i hear what you're saying 
but I need you to calm down. So it's like your conscious, your blue brain's talking to your red brain and saying, okay, I hear you. You're the alarm bell. But see, the thing about red brain is it's very much linked to our body and it's not very um, verbal. So you get it as a feeling. And that's why when we get those feelings, some people react in, in a different way and the blue brain's kind of shut down. It's not really um, saying, I hear you, calm you down. It's, it's doing nothing. It's gone missing. So this one's taking over. It's like this... Um, Joe Dispenza describes it as being on a wild horse and it can take you great places, but if you don't, if you don't kind of tell it where it needs to go, it'll just go wherever it ends up, right? So you just pot luck, great, I'm just floating around, I don't know where I'm going, you're rudderless. Whereas if you kind of, you know it's there, it wants to do good, but it doesn't know any difference, so it kind of needs a bit of a helping hand. So it's kind of like, okay, I hear what you're saying, but we don't want to go there, we want to go over here. And so understanding that you have the power to use your blue to overcome that red and really focus it, like what, I don't know, you know, what your technique were when you kind of switched your stuff, but there's a time and a period. Once once that happens and you understand the power of being able to take blue and telling red, no, nah, we're going this way, and you can kind of do those things, that's kind of where a lot of the magic happens. Mm, yeah, well, again, yeah, I don't want to talk about too much about me, but that's that's happened to me a few times where, yeah, you just have to say, nope this is the way we're going and then never really kind of look back. Right. But uh, yep. that's with my experience anyways. Yeah. And I guess that's that blue brain taking that red brain and just saying, okay, we're going to shut down for a while and we're going to, we're going to go on a trip that way. <laughs> yeah. Very much so. Like, you know, I was talking to a lady last year. She was in a very bad abusive um, relationship. She was an Islander, um, which pretty much meant they were very religious um, they, they frowned upon divorce. The husband was also seen as the, you know, the what do you call it, the main person of the house, um, and that kind of stuff. So women kind of were like the second fiddle. And so for her, leaving this guy, even though he was abusive, was such a tough thing. And she said, look, you know, for years she felt, you know, the concern about that. She hated the thing, and and then she said there just came a day where she just went, you know what? If I stay here, I'm just going to die. I can't do this. I need to do something else. And then she started to um, talk to family members about it. And they were like, hell yeah, you can divorce him. She was worried that they were going to like, you know, frown upon her wanting to divorce him because of the religious thing. And, um, you know, that didn't happen. They were actually supportive. And they're like, hell no, you're not going to stay in the And so they started supporting her. And then she started feeling more empowered because she now she's, okay, wow, one less thing I've got to worry about, one less thing I've got to worry about. And there was all this support for her. And so she got out of it. And, you know, now she's a counselor herself, um, you know, does all this stuff, um, which is amazing. And she, she's obviously been divorced now for quite a few years. But, you know, understanding and talking to people, and this is kind of where I picked up that pattern around how that red and blue just, you see it so often, um, even in leadership programs. One of the things I use is a tool called human, uh, human synergistics, which is they do this 360-degree feedback for managers. And they show, so it's based on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but it shows basically that managers that are super aggressive or too timid, so again, fight or flight, the ones that are stuck in red brain are the worst 10% of management styles in the world, the ones that can kind of not be dominated by fight or flight are the best 10, amazingly. So you see the pattern again come through. I mean, it's kind of obvious when you really think about it. If I'm so angry with the world and I'm managing people, it's going to come across as me just being, you know, that old school whack you with a stick if you don't do what I tell you. Get in there and just do it. But it creates issues, right? Like for me personally, people don't like me. Um, people talk behind my back, they'll leave the organisation. So there's all this negative stuff. But then also on a personal level, the way the, the study works, sorry, the way the tool works, they do um, a lot of analysis work around the world about people's health. So, again, amazingly, if you're in red brain, the, 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 the two that's um, fight or flight, they're also the least healthy. They're also the least effective. They're also the least, and this is at, in their home level, not just at work. So, you know, you, you see that pattern just come through all the time. And the more you start to look for it, the more you see, like it'd be interesting to see the people that you've helped and having conversations with them and see, oh yeah, how did you get through? And and, and that's kind of the, the where the magic is. I call it positive deviance. The people that have had bad things happen, but they come out the other side even better and stronger. Mm. And you know, listening to the journey. And that's why I love lived experience stuff where people talk about it. But a lot of times they don't know why it worked for them. So they go, I've came through. This is what I did. 
and there's practical things in there, but when you can kind of connect it with what's happening in your brain with the activities that you chose to do or the people that came into your life that kind of steered you in a direction that went pivoted your world, fantastic, you know, understanding that. And it's about, I mean, I don't say I know everything about this. This is just stuff I've learned from a lot, a lot of reading and a lot, a lot of stuff. Like even my studies, I look back now, I learned more from the books after the studies um, than I than I probably did just doing studies. And one of the reasons for that is that um, I really worked out that, you know, university lecturers and professors and all those guys, you know, they genuinely either been clinicians, so they work one-on-one with people, but they don't, they don't make things practical. They're highly intelligent, got good information, but they don't always make it practical. That's why, you know, I find that there's a, there was a lot missing when I qualified and actually had the piece of paper that says, you know, you've got your second degree and all that sort of thing. But I was like, I just don't feel that there's something missing. And so for me, the missing bit was all the social stuff. The mm-hmm. knowing what's around you. Yeah, we they kind of, you know, general psychology and psychologists and counselors do one-on-one stuff. Um, and it's very rare to really factor in the family and you having to make decisions. And also other stuff like when I do it as a school program, it's about educating the teachers to help the kids just have those interactions that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. So I I I would get the teachers to have, you know, at the end of every class, every day bring the whole class together and say, right, we could, I call it a blue, um, a goldfish conversation, a goldfish bowl conversation where basically or anyone can talk, but we're going to ask all the kids to go around the room, what's happened today that you maybe didn't like, and then talk about it. So they get used to talking about it. And as I said, it's about giving them courage. It's about calibrating behaviour that they don't like. They might say, oh, I really didn't like the way he did that. And then let's talk about it. So as a good facilitator, so you're training the teachers to do that. What you're really doing is saying to teachers, you, can, you need to put these kids in a way where in that dialogue model, they're not stopping and saying nothing in red brain. They're going to say something and they're going to feel comfortable saying it. So we're creating safety. We're creating opportunities to use our blue brain because we're actually problem solving and we're interacting. So we're not scared to say something and sitting there going, oh, I don't want to say anything because little Johnny's going to hate me after this kind of stuff. So for me, if the teacher understands enough about red brain, blue brain, and understands enough about the dialogue model and can put things in place so that the kids are getting those opportunities at five and six years old before, you know, they're wearing the wrong brands and the best, you know, hanging it on some other kid who who hasn't got the right shoes or something like that. If we get that stuff happening earlier on in in a school life, then you'd start to see a lot of that happen. Unfortunately, we do it too late, like when I'm doing it at work level, you know, we're adults now, some people entrenched in their ways and, now we're facilitating it. When, when I try to get a team to work well together, we go through this process, but it's a change management model because there's a lot of stuff already there. But with new kids coming in, there's no change management model. This is just a, a model. So the kids go, oh, yeah, this is something new. This is what school is. I don't know any of these kids yet. And now we're interacting and this just becomes normal. So when they become adults in the future, they're not going to put up with crap behavior because they go, hang on, no, 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 sorry. I don't like the way you just stack your finger in that guy's bottom. If you do that again, mate, we're talking to HR because that's not cool. But if you do it to me, you're going to have a problem. And if everybody sees that, you know, he won't do it again, hopefully. Um, So, yeah, that's kind of how that whole thing works. I find it it interesting because I'm always listening kind of on a bigger picture. And and basically, like, how, how do you see the what you're talking about? Like what you're talking about it on a kind of kind of on a micro level to some extent, right? Smaller, but on a macro level, like transferring the exactly what you're saying on a global level between like do you ever think about that? Like like what you're talking about is is basically it's small, but it, it's the same thing between countries. It's say, it could be it could be the same model used on a global scale. Do you do you Absolutely. think about that? Do you, yeah. Cause that, cause yeah, I, to me, I'm listening to it. And I'm like, why are we not doing this as as a global community, like within <laughs> our communities, but within yeah. you know, country to country and just across the world, right? Yeah, and uh, it's, I mean, you, you touch on a good point because I, I do think about that a lot. And the way I wrote the book was kind of to start getting the message out there, saying, okay, if enough people read the book and go, wow, this makes sense, right? And we're doing it at a school level. Suddenly, if they start to become a thing at school, then Hopefully, we can start getting it into the schools early enough. But then there's the second part of it is around breaking the patterns of the parents that keep doing it to their kids, right, if they're abusive. So, you know, it depends on who's going to read this book and who's going to run those things. That's why 
at least at school level, most kids, not all obviously, come into school and the teachers have access to them for quite long periods of time. So I think there's bang for your buck in doing that. But I think on a, on a, on a bigger scale, if we were doing it across, you know, like you say, countries and all this kind of stuff, a big part of it is about understanding the dialogue conversation, you know, when you when you think about it, like the Black Lives Matter is a, a great example, right, where, you know, yes, the guy um, died, people were um, unhappy about that, and a lot of it is historical about, you know, obviously being a dark person just like you and I both. But, um, you know, in a, in a nutshell, there's some people that did that in a destructive way to show their protest, looting and breaking into mm-hmm. things and beating people up. That's not that's a red brain response. Mm-hmm. If you wanted a blue brain response, you should say, hang on, a person died here. We're not happy. We're using our anger for something good. We need to come up mm-hmm. with reforms around this. Do we, you know, one of the things when I was in the police and I then did police programs is teaching police to tactically disengage. Like one of the things that was horrifying to me being an ex-cop and being an ex-trainer of cops was looking at, you know, one guy sitting on them. There's about three other officers there. What are the three other officers doing? Mate, he's under control. Let's just get off his back because I don't want to see you get injured. So they're all standing around, right? This is the stuff that don't get talked about. So one guy's doing something stupid. He might have feel threatened say, look, personally, he might have had a red brain response. You're living in America. There's guns all around. This guy's a known felon. So all these things go off in your head, right? So you've got to think like a human being. Again, I, I look at it and go, was he scared about something? You know, what? I don't know. So, he, he, you know, he didn't stop. But what are all the other people doing? And this is where, um, you know, teaching cops a better way is is important. Like how do, how do I get myself out of red brain into blue Okay, he's calm. You can start to go through a checklist and ask yourself questions. When you ask yourself high-level questions, you actually calm your brain down and you start to go, okay, look around, nothing there, Mm. nothing there. Okay, he's tired, he's fine. And so you kind of do a checklist in your head and part of that is calming you down because you're you're coming into blue brain yourself. If you're still in red, you're probably Mm. more likely to be holding him down, right? Um, But then what are the other officers doing? Are they in danger? They're looking around. Okay, no, no danger. Hey, Dave, you can get off him now. You know, he's fine. Mm. We'll wait till the squad car arrives. And so th- th- there's lots of things like that where we can use practical examples where we're using our b- blue brain to come up with good solutions to a thing that angers people. Like mm. there's no reason. I mean, sorry, the, they have the right to be feeling bad about that and being angry about another per- black person being, you know, unnecessarily killed and, and not listened to and all that stuff. Totally get that. But if it's a red brain response, that's when they go whacking things and destroying property and tipping police cars over. doesn't help you, does it? And especially yeah. like, you know, th- there's some people that probably do uh, cause more issues towards the cause because, you know, they might have been black and they've done all this more, you know, criminality acts and people are watching this on TV and go, look how these people respond. Mm-hmm. Oh, no wonder they get arrested all the mm-hmm. time and, you know, bring up all crap think examples, you know. And so, yeah, I, I just think that, like you said, if we want to do this kind of stuff all around the world, it's about opening good dialogue. Dialogue's the mm. key because we're mm. social people. We talk about it. Let's come up with solutions. Let's be blue brain. If I'm coming at you like you guys, like, bleh, we get into, re- you know, I get angry, you get angry, and we have this mm. kind of, um, we don't get anywhere. Well, I would love to continue some of these conversations because, again, I have the experience of the bouncing, you know, and and so I, I mean, after all the years of bouncing, I saw the red brain exp- response, which was like, yep. like okay, force for force, right? And yep. then all those years later, fourteen years later, that blue brain of just like, hey, man, you know, I know you're upset, I, you know, but you know, let's just walk out. I'll, I'll buy you a beer next time you come, you know. So they're like same kind yes. of situation. But dealing yeah. with it, so so yeah. I mean, it's it's great to talk totally. have these conversations for for everybody, like all across the world. Like, yeah, you're unhappy, but how can you make it uh, a positive uh, yeah. outcome, right? Yeah, and framing the questions. The, the, the key thing is questions, right? Like, even if I always get asked, you know, what do I do if someone's suicidal and they're standing in front of me, and it's like, just talk to them, you mm-hmm. know, connect on a human level. Keep calm yourself because some people panic. Oh, crap, you know, what if I stuff this up? So I even, like, when I teach first responders um, how to kind of do first responder mental health first aiders, it's about saying, first thing you got to do is stay in blue because he's in red or she um, is, is in red and not in a good space. You have to stay in blue because if you freak out, they could freak out. And if you don't know what to do, so this is why I say 
have a bit of a script for yourself. So if I am getting there, I don't go, <gasps> I actually have something I can say and say, you know, okay, talk to me about, you know, your family, you know, what are they going to think about this? So now you, you're forcing them to think about what are my family going to think about it? They might go, oh, my family don't care about me. So who's your family? Talk to me about them. You know, what's your relationship? So you're asking questions and they have to use the blue brain to answer them because it's not an amygdala thing that they can answer with. So again, those techniques that drag them in, and like you just said about the bouncer stuff, you're keeping calm by, because if you're calm, they're less likely to be aggressive towards you. But if you come out, hey, what are you doing, you idiot? You know, and then suddenly they hark up because they're now mm -hmm. feeling threatened because you've shown a, a gesture of aggression, right? And then, yeah, more likely to bomb into yeah. stuff. And that's other things we teach the, the police too back in when I was doing this stuff is exactly that, you know, um, is asking yourself, okay, why is this guy really aggressive? So by doing that, I'm staying calm. I'm asking myself questions. And then I'm also giving myself an opportunity. Are you angry because, you know, that guy looked at your girlfriend? Oh, okay. So let's talk mm. about that area. You know, do what's he, what, what's he done really? You know, let's talk about that. So he, oh, yeah, okay, I'm being a dickhead, you know, <laughs> you know that yeah, kind of thing. So, yeah. um, it's, conversation's it's, powerful. Yeah, it's a great self-regulating thing for people just generally, like, to do that same, give themselves that same conversation, like why am I mad in traffic or whatever, right? Like, like with the, yeah. all these techniques that you're talking about, whether it's again global or community-minded or family or within the the self, it's all it's all just so fascinating and so valuable. So yeah, so, well, that's what that's what I hope it it is. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So I would, I, yeah, I hope we can have some more conversations around these uh, these topics. Oh, so absolutely. I think you're doing amazing absolutely. work, so it's awesome. No, thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. But, yeah, anytime you want me, just give me a yell, man, and this time I'll get, I'll get there on time too. <laughs> <laughs> no I really worries. apologize. Foul start. <laughs> yeah, no, that's all right. But, uh, yeah, well, I'll get, I'll get Willow to put all your links in the uh, – in the awesome. uh, in the bottom there. So, anything else you wanna you wanna add before we kind of close out here? No, look. If anyone wants that is interested in in reading the book, um, they can jump on Amazon. They do give you a few chapters for free. So it's called "Lighting the Blue Flame" by Clint Adams. Um, so yeah, it's more about just people under wanting to read it. And if you do think it's good, you know, put reviews out there. The quicker people talk about it and, and hopefully get spread around, like I said, it's about getting messages out to people as much as possible. And, mm. and once that kind of happens, hopefully we, we can see some, some more things happen from that. Yeah, no, that's all. Like I said, I, I read that. I read as much as I could on there. Um, and, yeah, I thought it was really, really great. So, so awesome. awesome. I appreciate awesome. it. Thank you. Um, well, thank you for coming. So that's, uh, I look What's, forward to talking again. So have a yeah, so absolutely. It's morning for you. So have a great morning. <laughs> you have a great Friday night. Thank you. Cool. Vibe. Thank you all so much for joining us as always. If you like what we do here, check out our sponsor champ program, which allows us to help young men and male identifying individuals to move past pain and lead happier lives. You can find more information at thegoliathfoundation.com or email us at levengoliath at gmail.com if you're interested in supporting what we do here. If you have a topic you'd like us to cover or you'd like to be on the podcast, you can also email us or reach us on Instagram as levengoliath or the Goliath Foundation on Facebook. Have yourself a great weekend and we'll catch you next time. Bye. Oh, just end the recording here. <laughs>